G'day Footyology listeners, Roko here. Enjoy our podcast? Well, you can become an official Footyology podcast supporter simply by using the supporter feature through ACAST. There's no subscription or regular commitment, just the sheer satisfaction that comes with knowing you've kept the debt collectors from our door. No, just kidding. It does help though. If you want to get started, you just need to follow the support this show link in the show description. Thanks again. And now let's get on with it. Welcome to the Footyology Podcast with Rowan Connolly and Mark Fine. G'day everyone, welcome to the Footyology Podcast on this uh, lovely Melbourne late summer's morning. Uh, I'm Rowan Connolly and uh, with me as usual, my co-host Mark Fine. And Finey, we have got a big surprise for Footyology listeners, which I'll tell you very shortly. I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> I don't know what it is exactly myself, so... I am looking forward to it, as I imagine our listeners are too, and I know what else they're looking forward to. What's that? The next opportunity to get down to 144 Bridport Street in Albert Park, home of Australia's, I call it iconic hamburger, 81 years old, Andrew's Hamburgers, always in top tens. And why? Because when you're on a good thing, I'm not going to take... I better be careful for copyright here. When you're on a good thing, keep eating it from Andrews. And the good thing is their hamburgers are true blue Aussie meat buns. I know you love them. Don't get too involved with uh, just buns and meat because you get the fresh lettuce. You get the beautiful tomatoes, cheese, eggs, bacons. Some people like pineapple. They'll do it. They'll do it for you. Because it's a good old Aussie burger with the lot. I'm almost salivating Don't. over the control panel here. Do not. No, no, we'll blow up. And who else do we have to thank? You know, Nick's Bartels is now West Point Properties. And this is fantastic construction in the city, Melbourne, high, high-end stuff, but not necessarily out of people's reach. Because I'll tell you this. If you've got a property, especially around that area, Albert Park, South Melbourne, Port Melbourne, that needs improvement or rebuilding, think West Point Properties, think Nick Spartels. Great sponsors of the Footyology podcast. And finally, brace yourself, we have another sponsor joining the crew here at Footyology, our loyal listeners. I'm really excited about this, Finey. Check this out. We have a new sponsor aboard, and it is online retail and auction company, Grays Online, who offer a huge range of consumer and industrial goods direct from manufacturers. They have an amazing offer for Footyology listeners this week. Check this out. We've got detailed links you can find in our episode description this week to a couple of fantastic offers on some very special cars. There's a 2018 Ford Mustang Dick Johnson Limited Edition and a 2003 HRT Peter Brock Monaro. And I've had a look at it finally. It looks like it's fresh on the starting grid at Bathurst. The auctions for both these amazing vehicles kick off at just $9. Now, I'm telling you, and I know this is a fact, I have got a couple of mates that have bought incredibly great valued cars off Grays Online, and that's their business. In fact, one of them is on it 16 hours a day. He bought a BMW recently, no joke, in great nick, 
within 10 years old of age for under five grand. Well, you won't be getting those for $9. I'll give you the tip, but that's what the price starts at. Check out the details of both these cars. You'll find them in the episode description. You'll see what I mean. They are two amazing cars. Any motorsport fan would be absolutely stoked to own. Grades Online don't just sell cars, though. There's a huge range of stuff from $2 bottles of wine to $2 million cranes and everything in between, finally. TVs, homewares, white goods, power tools, etc. Nearly every auction starts at just $9. Here is the very special deal for all Footyology listeners this week. Jump on Grays Online, have a look at what they're offering. For any purchase over $50, they will give you $30 off. Yep, $30 off just by using either of the following two voucher codes. ROCO for me, R-O-C-O, or FINEY, F-I-N-E-Y for FINEY. Jump online, find what you want, type in those codes, and anything more than 50 bucks, they'll give you 30 off. It's a terrific offer, and we are very, very thankful to Grays Online for their support. As Footyology listeners will be FINEY when they jump online, and check out all their amazing offers, particularly those two very special cars. How's that? You excited? I love Greys Online, and now I love them even more. Well, we're going to heap to get through today. Let's not waste any more time. On Footyology Newsfeed. All right, uh, a lot of good footy news around AFLW Round 2, finally. Uh, watched a heap of it uh, again on the weekend. Did you watch a lot of it? Yeah, I did watch a lot of it. I saw football again in many different conditions, and I just, I'll tell you, I maintain a fact, and that is, I wonder whether a lot of people that aren't into it, and maybe knockers, are supporters of the four teams that are yet to participate, or have previously been supporters of teams that aren't participating. I was involved in that St Kilda Adelaide game yesterday as intensely and I'm not putting this on putting this on as intensely as any St Kilda game I've watched previously on TV. I thought I've got to say I thought all three Sunday games were just terrific to watch and I got uh, I didn't necessarily mean to watch them all in their entirety but I did because I thought they were great contests. Let's have a quick look at the conference ladders so far after two rounds. So conference A uh, you've got Brisbane undefeated on top of the ladder. Kangaroos and Gold Coast and Adelaide and GWS have all won one game now and uh, bringing up the rear Geelong and Richmond yet to break the duck. And in Conference B, which you'd say at this early stage looks like the stronger of the conferences, Fremantle, Collingwood and Melbourne all undefeated. Carlton and the Western Bulldogs with one victory each. St Kilda and West Coast yet to break the duck. Um, started off on Friday evening, of course, and a really convincing win to Melbourne over the Bulldogs. Uh, quite difficult conditions, and uh, Bulldogs just couldn't really get going. Melbourne pretty much closing the deal with two goals in the first quarter and then another two in the third quarter. Um, they've been thereabouts, haven't they, uh, in the AFLW so far, but looking like they're taking it to another level this season. Um, another side that looked really good in Season 1, unlucky perhaps to to miss out on playing finals, but very good chance this year, North Melbourne. They had a very convincing win over GWS 
uh, down in Hobart, 6-1-37, defeating the Giants 2-7-18. The one I looked at most closely on on Saturday finally was the Gold Coast-Richmond game, two of the four new sides, and... uh, a pretty good win to Gold Coast, 5-3-33 over the Tigers, 2-10-22. They had their chances in the last quarter, Richmond, didn't they? I just, I've made some notes here, and that was the first thing I wrote. They just, I've got Richmond kicking. They sprayed it everywhere in the last chance. In fact, five straight behinds in the last quarter, uh, whilst Gold Coast didn't score. So certainly had their chances. I'll tell you what, we talk about hard hits in women's footy. And there was an absolute, I visibly winced when this happened, Gold Coast's uh, Jamie Stanton backing back to take a mark, and she got absolutely smashed into next week by uh, Richmond's Laura McClelland. And um, very, very courageous bit of play. And uh, there were, I saw a few incidents like that over the weekend. Well, there, there was one in the St Kilda Adelaide game with the Irish girl Fitzpatrick for St Kilda, yep. except she marked it. Yes. That actually was... One of the great marks. I mean, you know, St Kilda hopefully put that up on the website because they certainly celebrated Rewald's famous mark going backwards. Gee, that was courageous. And the umpire got it a bit wrong, I thought. Yeah, well, speaking on the umpiring, I don't want to dwell on it overly, but I reckon one thing I've noticed, they're obviously they let the play go a bit more because they're hoping the ball might come out of some of the congestion. But I reckon they're not paying enough holding the ball free kicks. I'm not sure really good tackling's being rewarded enough. Yeah, I do feel that there are free kicks paid that either result in scores or... I think they're trying to get the scores up. Yeah. And they don't need to. They don't need to help manufacture the game. But what I would say about the umpiring is that it's probably better than a lot of the girls have had previously if they've played through state leagues, because that's something somewhere where women's football will improve markedly over the entire length and breadth of the country. So I think that the girls maybe used to get away with a bit more. Some of the disposal is creative, would I say, and the umpires need to be onto that, and they generally are. Yeah, so there were a couple of uh, throws that sort of got slipped under the radar. One thing did frustrate me in the Richmond-Gold uh, Coast game the Gold Coast Ruckman, every time she went up for a throw, she wrapped her arms just sort of around the Richmond player's waist and didn't get penalised once. All right, well, the umpiring... Uh, rev- I think it's been pretty good. The umpiring review might look at a few of them. The big one from a big picture point of view was the um, WA Derby on Saturday evening and uh, a, a big win to Fremantle. They are looking like a really good side. Nine six sixty defeated West Coast, two three fifteen. But the headline from that finally surely has to be the crowd, 35,185 at Optus Stadium. And 30,000 of them pre-sold, people were pre-booked. Now, there's no entry fee into the game, but that money was a bushfire uh, relief fundraiser with everybody got in, going through there, I think, making some donations and not just coin donations. So people did put a lot of money in through the gate for the bushfire relief. And unfortunately, they didn't get a great contest because Fremantle, uh, at this stage, clearly a, a better team based on the simple mathematics of being around longer. Their cohesion... West Coast had plenty of ball into their forward line, mm. but it broke down in their forward line, whereas Fremantle 
had some really different options to goal from marking to great ground play. I'm not sure West Coast are that far off it. I mean, I probably stupidly in retrospect tweeted after about 10 minutes of their first game against Collingwood that they look like a really good side and they've kicked three goals since that moment in two games. But um, I, I think you'll find a lot of teams improve quickly as indeed the skill level overall uh, is improving pretty quickly. Good win to Brisbane again, and they're a, a perennial uh, strong side in the AFLW. Had to come from behind against Geelong, uh, who were two goals up at half time down at the Cattery, but absolutely dominated the second half, Brisbane. Five goals, one in the second half to just one behind by the Cats, and finished really strongly. Do you find that some of the teams... Uh, especially, we've got to understand this is a winter game being played in the heat of summer. Some of the teams are finding it hard to finish off four quarters of football. And I'm not saying that they're not fit, but maybe they've just put in a real big effort in that first two or three, two and a half quarters. And as I said, this is not really a game designed for 35, 30 degrees, but it's been played in those conditions. Well, that's been the case with the Cats. I mean, they faded. Uh, they were very competitive against Frio in week one over in Perth and faded badly, and uh, it happened again to them. So something they'll probably be having a look at. And also, that these girls are not used to travelling to Perth and then coming back and playing another <clears> game of footy. Good point. Um, I guess the uh, in, in a, from a Melbourne perspective, the headlining game was the clash of traditional rivals, Carlton Collingwood, at Icon Park. See, I just I heard that the trash, the, we did have the clash of traditional rivals, but in AFLW, isn't it Melbourne Footscray or Melbourne uh, Western Bulldogs? Good point. Well, I was going to say it's probably Darabin versus University of <laughs> Melbourne or something. I mean, they've been, they've been going on yep. a bit longer, but. Um, This is another really entertaining game. And in the end, the Pies victorious by 15 points, 6-3-39, defeating the Blues, 3-6-24. Bit of controversy here in, uh, was it the first or second quarter when the Blues were still, you know, very big chance. And uh, Taylor Harris got the handball over the top. I can't remember who the player was, but she basically dribbled it through the goal, and it looked for all intents and purposes to have gone through, but the ball sort of spun on the point, danced along the line and came out again. No goal awarded. I thought a replay showed that the entirety of the ball had actually bounced over the line. I can't believe that that happened because I didn't watch the Carlton-Collingwood game, but exactly the same thing happened in St Kilda-Adelaide. I saw it. and The St Kilda defender watched it happen. Yeah. And an Adelaide player swooped in and kicked it off the ground. I don't think the goal umpire was going to pay the first goal. Yeah, well, I, I thought... And yeah. I thought that was definitely a goal. I saw it spinning behind the line. Yeah, I, I thought that one went over too. But yeah, had um, had the player who was awarded the goal, and who was it in the end? Um, I think they, they credited the goal to... I can't remember who kicked off the ground, but it was uh, Thompson who probably kicked the goal. Yeah, I know, remarkably similar incidents. Um, that was a good game too. Just quickly, uh, a bit of controversy in the aftermath of the Carlton Collingwood game. Mm. Uh, uh, our good friend Georgie Parker interviewing uh, Collingwood defender Stacey Livingston after the game. Hey, and what uh, did she say about Taylor Harris? She said, uh, "Well, Georgie asked her, you know, how uh, how did it go? How do you play her?" And she said, "You've just got to stop her in the air. Um, that's her game, and if you can do that, she's useless." Correct. Now, it's one of those ones... I mean, I'm not saying correct. That I, I heard that. I can't... 
It's very honest. I'm, yeah, <laughs> I'm cutting her a bit of slack on that because I, I think if, given her druthers, she didn't mean completely useless, but she meant that's sort of her yeah. modus operandi and she hasn't got a lot to go to if that you chop that off. I think just yeah. on, it, on face it, that is a great answer because that is a little bit of the naivety, naivete of the AFLW player who have not been you know, coached and prepared for interview after interview and, and giving the opposition ammunition and all that rubbish. That is exactly what she would have, they would have been discussing and yeah. the terms they would have used at training. Beat her in the air. She's no good on the ground. Well, it's uh, already created a bit of a uh, bit of spice ahead of the rematch. Uh, Daniel Harford, Carlton coach, was asked about it, and he said, uh, "I would have thought that was bordering on garbage." And uh, I think Channel Seven tweeted the interview and wrote on top of it, "We can't wait for the rematch." That's and great. Taylor Harris came in and said, "Yeah, neither can I." So a bit of spice there between the Blues and the Magpies, which is good to see. It is good to see because if you're expecting spice between players who play for their against their old club, uh, there was a bit of that. There's Melbourne Footscray. There's a bit of uh, I call them Footscray. Melbourne Western Bulldogs. There's a bit of interaction, and and I don't think there was too much um, ill feeling. St Kilda Adelaide, St Kilda has a player called Jess Sedunary. Mm. Do you know what they did before the game to to the ex Adelaide Premiership player? They all came up and hugged her. Oh, she, yeah. she was running around. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah I they, saw they her interviewed. Different. I saw there was a profile piece on her actually yeah. at half time. Yeah, she's very articulate and yeah, uh, very good. And what was it? she's? Uh, she was coming off another sport initially, wasn't she? Um, uh, frisbee. No, no, no. <laughs> We've got a, a frisbee player. A, a little more. Oh, have we? Oh, St Hilda does. There was an international frisbee player. Ultimate, they call it. Ultimate that game. frisbee. Yeah. He played for a club and now plays for St Kilda. Yeah, okay. Yeah, it's a good, We're, fun game, that one. And you know what that made me think? What? I only The only thing I know with frisbee is throwing it in dogs, you know, at the park. Yeah. Like dogs leap and catch it. Is that part of ultimate frisbee? I don't think so. No, I think I'm pretty sure there's a no animal rule in the ultimate frisbee league. Um, that's AFLW round two. and uh, oh, I just want to mention, in the St Kilda-Adelaide game, look, great effort by St Kilda against a powerful team. In St Kilda's second game, they led with five minutes yeah. to go. The turning point, if people want to see the best of AFLW, have a look at a goal that Adelaide got, including a one-handed mark by oh, Catherine yes. Gum, yep. who was playing brilliantly anyhow. That mark by Catherine Gum, how how skillful. And she not only marked it with one hand, she kept running and kept in motion and hit the target 35, 45 metres away. Yeah, no, look, I, the games I saw overall, I thought the skill level was pretty good. And I reckon a lot of people last week, I don't think round one, the games were necessarily that great. And I reckon a lot of people jumped in and just said, uh, without enough evidence, four new teams has diminished the talent pool too far. It's it's a backward step. I think you'd be changing your tune a bit after no, this weekend. The talent pool's getting the injection from the TAC Cup and state leagues that can well withstand new clubs. I mean, we are going to see the upsurge. Gone will be the cross-sport players and talented sports women who've played for two or three years. They'll be replaced by talented, the best of the best who've been playing for seven or eight years. That makes all the difference. All right. Well, that was round two of the AFLW. We have three final teams left in our Footyology season preview, Finey. 
and uh, I've followed the tried and trusted take one team from each third of the ladder. No, you haven't. This time you've taken the last three teams. Well, correct. But I put <laughs> they were grouped in three groups of six to begin with. And the three teams yet to be done, Fremantle, GWS and Richmond. Let's start with the Dockers. Your thoughts on them in 2020? They're a club that obviously replacing Ross Lyon as coach is a big move philosophically because they had invested so much in Ross being the man, hadn't they? Yep. In terms of, and he did get them to a grand final, but in terms of game style, in terms of how the club was perceived, they had added backbone, I think, initially with Ross Lyon, and in the end had lost the football public by the perception of how they played. I think a bit unfairly. You've got all the numbers and you do the statistics. I I don't think that they were as hard to watch or as low scoring or as dour as people suggested. Um, No, perhaps not. But by the same token, I I felt like they never really fully committed to a rebuild. I mean, enough new players came into the mix, but they were in and out. I don't think many of them became pivotal parts of it. That's the big thing. They had a wash of... 20 players who were given some exposure but not committed exposure. And I, I think uh, you've seen, obviously, changing of the guard with Justin Longmuir coming on as coach, but um, Aaron Sandilands retired. Hayden Ballantyne retired. Brad Hill has gone. Ed Langdon has gone. So the onus is really more on that young talent now. And who are we talking about? We're talking about those high draft picks, uh, Andrew Brayshaw and Adam Chera. Um, you'll see a lot more of them, I think. What I found interesting, I had a chat to Joel Hamling um, about a week ago about the Dockers this year, and I oh, who's the other person I spoke to over there? But everyone I've spoken to about the Dockers, who is involved with the Dockers, they are definitely going to be plying a more aggressive, positive game style this year. They've been working on it really hard. Of course, under Ross Lyon, it was always defence first, limiting opponents' opportunities to use the ball cleanly and trying to capitalise on the rebound. Um, They've already got a a pretty strong inside game. They were second overall last year for contested ball and and fifth on the differentials. Um, You've got some really strong bodies there in uh, the form of Nat Fife, of course, superstar now a uh, dual Brownlow medalist. I don't know why. He reminds me of Rory McIlroy. He reminds me of McIlroy in his ability to always ultimately be great and just something about his look and his air and his self-belief he's he sees himself winning games for Fremantle it's so valuable it's interesting actually I've got a copy of the AFL 2020 uh, media guide we call it which has come out available to everyone I think for about 40 bucks in news agents but Fife is on the cover being the Brownlow medalist and there's something about I don't know if it's the lights in his hair or something but it looks like his hair's gone all grey. And I was looking, I was thinking, this is Nat Fife at about 45. But uh, no, he's still got plenty to give. And uh, obviously, well, last year anyway, the number one player in the game. Like I said, a lot more onus on the likes of Brayshaw, uh, Chera. A um, couple of other players. Uh, Brett Bewley is one I think people inside the club are expecting to really kick on from last year. Um, I think their defence will be a more attacking defence. They'll look to rebound a bit better. Um, Michael Walters, of course, a a bona fide star for them. Uh, Where do you see him coming? 
the problem is their forward line. Unfortunately, Jesse Hogan still has uh, issues that he's working through, and, and some of them are, well, I think they surround mental health issues mm. at the moment, and that means that he cannot be expected to be a driving force in the early part of the season. Is that fair to say? Uh, absolutely fair to say. Tabner has been a, you know, just out of distance answer to the problem, but either through inconsistent form or injury. Well, he, he I reckon he'd turn the corner when he got injured last year. Correct. So when finally the form married up to the promise, injury struck. And, mm. and that's frustrating to say the least. So how does that forward line look for them? That's the big question. Well, there's no doubt it's a weakness. Uh, Never been a high-scoring team, even when they were up at the top of the ladder under Ross. Uh, Last year, they averaged, uh, I think, less than 72 points per game, third lowest in the AFL. I think skills had a bit to do with that as well. Their skill level is also a bit of a perennial weakness, and I know they've been doing a lot of work on that uh, in terms of kicking efficiency. Um, but you're right. I mean, look, they they need Hogan to hopefully, fingers crossed, come good. They need Tabiner to go on with that um, sort of more consistent promise he showed last year. I think the other one there's high hopes about still, and he is a, another sort of enigma, but Cam McCarthy, who I think they think... They can, want to play up on a wing and on yeah, the ball a bit. Yeah, but he'll he'll venture forward and kick plenty of goals. So... They're a they're a hard team to to put a handle on. I, I you must... know that you know that I believe their fans are a part of the problem because they're that? not demanding. Oh, en- too easily satisfied because they're not yeah. demanding enough. Uh, this for people that are new to the podcast. Um, my theory on Fremantle supporters is as long as they've got a ticket to a game that Fremantle wins, then they are just delighted. So you and generally those tickets tend to rotate. So if they're winning home games. Not everyone, but you know, two out of three. Then life's great. The problem is, if you're not winning any on the road, you're going to end up seventeenth to fifteenth on the ladder. And I, I just can't believe how well they're received after a terrible performance on the road. So where do you have them finishing? Fifteenth to seventeenth. Yeah, I, I, I think they're they have potential to finish higher, but I, I still think I'd consign them to the bottom third. I get. I have a feel. Stage. I have a feeling with the team that. They need to start well. That The longer the season goes is not great for them at this stage. Still with a young, a young team, new coach and combinations to work out, I think we're going to see the best at the beginning. So they need to get off to a bit of a start. All right, let's have a look at GWS, of course, runner-up uh, to Richmond. Smashed on grand final day, unfortunately for them, but a uh, pretty lion-hearted finals Campaign. I don't think many people, even at the start of the finals, were expecting them to figure on the last Saturday in September. Um, so where do you think they're at? What a different team. This was a side that had been for ever since they were created, the glamour team with too many stars, too many egos, not enough room for everybody to fit. And they turned into a hard-working, surprise packet with some real no-names getting the job done. And and surprisingly, you know, when you think of Finlayson, when you think of the work that DeBoer does, that Sam Reid was still in the team, that Mm. they really ended up being a side counterintuitive to how they were created, and that is what a real football team is. And and you know what? I, I went from having 
not no respect for them, but f- f- being very skeptical skeptical about their prospects at the top end of football in in finals to really admiring them. Yeah, and I think um, it's a good point about the the more sort of blue collar feel about the personnel. There was also, I thought, importantly in the finals, a more blue-collar feel to how they played. They certainly got tougher. They became a quite a nasty team. It's Very fact, much so. Quite over the top in some cases, but it definitely worked for them. Um, who was I talking to from the Giants? Jacob Hop- Hopper. Like they, it, I said, did you know what clicked for you? And no doubt, finding that nasty streak really worked for them. Um, you know the, what else works for them? After all these years, it's like sifting for gold. The players that have committed to the club, they are, by definition, loyal GWS players. So, yeah, they've lost a lot along the way, but these players, Cornelio, Toby Green, Kelly, great footballers, but also really true giant, true giants. Finally, they've sorted out wheat from chaff and have the men that want to be GWS players. I think another thing really going for them is their balance. I think they're relatively strong in most areas. To wit, um, they were fourth for points scored last year, even though we've talked about their forward line at, at times having issues. It got into a groove last year with Cameron the P and Finlayson, a revelation up forward, and Himmelberg part of that as well. Their back line is probably their strongest suit. They conceded fifth fewest points but they sort of negate and rebound in equal measures. I think you've got Phil Davis and Nick Haynes in the key roles. Sam Taylor, real revelation. Uh, really good run and rebound too. Of course, they moved Lockie Whitfield to half back, and that was a huge success. Heath Shaw still getting it done, and Zach Williams as well. So there's a good balance there, and their midfield, um, again, gets the job done. They're pretty strong for contested ball. They're strong for clearances. They get Callum Ward back in the first third, they do. Of, the third of the season. Yeah, no, re- really good point. So um, you just think that uh, that sort of uh, mercurial nature of them might have we might have gone past that, and they're ready to become a consistently Sam Jacobs competing team. Yeah, good pick up for them. So I think their best twenty-two is top four. How strange! I'm about to say that I think depth might be an issue for them. Isn't, hasn't the worm turned? Yeah, look, I'm um, look. Aside that makes a grand final, clearly is a top four contender. I, I certainly wouldn't have him as a top four lock because that's how tight it is. I reckon in, in the top sort of eight in the competition, but uh, have to be a big chance to even go one better than last year. I would have thought. Yeah, I, I have them in the top four because I think mentally they've matured and. They made the grand final. It's a legit. I have a look at historically at teams that make the grand final on a journey. They generally are teams that go on to win grand finals. Yeah, you do that from the top four, and I now respect them as I would any other club on that journey. Yeah, historically, and even if you look at the last few years, I mean, two preliminary finals and a semi-final, and that's been parlayed into a grand it's, final. It's the yeah. perfect. It's the perfect road. To the ultimate success. Well, okay, let's finish off our uh, club previews by uh, speaking about going one spot higher. Well, this club can't because they are undoubtedly the number one club in the competition, have been for three years. I'm talking, of course, about the Richmond Football Club. What is scary about them, Finey, is that 
they were just, uh, you couldn't get near them in September last year once again. And I can actually see them getting better still, despite the retirement of Alex Rance. Obviously, that is a loss to them. But in terms of major losses, they didn't play the entire 2019 with him. And uh, all that happened was Dylan Grimes stepped up, David Asprey stepped up, and uh, their defence was every bit as good as it had been. Where I look at them and think they can still get better is, um, well, two names in particular. One, Sydney Stack, one of the stories of last year and was fantastic for them until he got injured. Unfortunately, couldn't be part of that premiership. And the one-game premiership player, Marlon Pickett. Now, have a look at that performance in the grand final. Consider he's a mature guy with plenty of football experience. He could actually be one of their best players. Um, This is why you'd need to really put them in at the top of your selections. Now, I have not picked them to win the flag this year because I'm really looking... It's no disrespect to Richmond. I actually think they're the best team in the competition, but I just think it's so obvious that everybody would put them on top, and I actually think the Western Bulldogs can fly this year all the way back up the top. And I'm using the Hawthorne model from 2008 and the sort of break they had till the triple premiership run. But in reality, Richmond are the team for exactly the reasons you said. Ellis is a loss. Look, he was a very good player for them and part of their best 22. Well, just by mentioning depth, uh, that was one note I had here. So also, Sean Griggs retired, Dan Butler at St Kilda, Mav Wellis retired, Jacob Townsend now at Essendon. However... That wouldn't worry them. Well, after their 2017 flag, they lost several players, and we thought, oh, will the depth be tested? They just found new players. Oh, look, Higgins... Higgins comes back. Higgins gets a clean bill of health, I believe, by the start of the season, so it's great news, mainly for, you know, beyond football for Jack Higgins, but it's great for Richmond. And they... Have a look at that forward line. Castagna is just brilliant. I know he missed a few goals on grand final day, but he really could have been near best on ground. I mean, he was the man that was... How do you organise yourself to play against a forward line that has Lynch and Rewalt? Now, Rewalt had a highly interrupted season, so he's champing at the bit. Mm. Lynch, five weeks to get it right. Yeah. End of the year as the number one key forward in the comp. How do you combat them... Because they do work together. Well, so as a duo, you'd probably say they only had you know two months as oh, as correct. both fit and correct. firing, and you saw how dangerous they were in the final. And, so and give in, it a full season. And in the grand final, I think Rewalt sacrificed. Well, I know he did. He sacrificed himself further up the ground, selflessly, knowing that Lynch had really carried the team through without him in the second half of the season. But I think Rewalt kicks more goals in 2020. Castagna's brilliant up there. Then they've got, as you know, Stack. Does he play forward? Does he play back? You know where he plays? He plays where he ruins your team because mm. he can do either. I saw him against St Kilda. St Kilda were in the game against Richmond until Sydney Stack just went, bang, he's great. I Look, I, I think a, a significant point about them, which I wouldn't say overlooked, but I'm not sure we talk about it enough, is the extent to which they've rewritten the rule book on traditional indicators of success. Here's the example. Where do you reckon... Where do you reckon oh, no. It's they're not interested it's, in clearances. Well, they ranked last for clearances last inter- year. They are not interested in clearances. But, well, contested ball is another um, consistent indicator. They ranked second last for contested ball. Well, that, now you're starting to see, listeners, why 
some of the stats that we keep in this game. I don't blame Champion Data. The clubs want these stats. Some of the stats that we literally pick our lists by are not correct. You know what Richmond win on? Territory, space. Yeah. Well, they care where the ball is. It's keeping the ball moving. It, it's keeping the ball moving. That's the number one rule. And they pressure, they, they apply physical pressure. It's also how they keep the ball moving, Finey. Ball movement, keeping the ball alive, as they call it, is the number one priority. And that often comes not even through clean possession. It comes through little taps, knock-ons, body strength, just blocking the ball forward. Also, have a look at how often they get the ball in congestion and just handball it into space, knowing that a teammate will be there. Their positioning is A1 as well. But also have a look at ends of quarters or even a quarter where they are in control of the game, how they can turn the tap off for a team by corralling them on a wing or a half-forward flank boundary line, and the teams they're playing against cannot move out of their corral. Mm. They they position there. That's where their backmen are so well-disciplined. Have a look at the talk that goes on with Bashar Hawley, with... You've got Grimes. They're not only playing the game, they are seeing the game. Mm. No, they're, they're, um, they're positioning and... Who did I speak to for them? Kane Lambert. Yep. He talked about this as well. That they, He said, it's a real comfort to them to know you're not expected to go and get 30 touches, even as a midfielder. Correct. The ethos being, he said, okay, I might not be near the ball, but if I run to the right spot, I might be in a position, position to get the ball. And to use it in a damaging way. It's real estate, finding position position, 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 position. And their position <laughs> is number one on the ladder. Remember we used to make jokes about them finishing ninth? Mm-hmm. I think them finishing first is going to be more of a serial reoccurrence than ninth, but I bet you there's less jokes. Yeah. There's actually a man... I'm trying to remember the mantra he repeated, but it was sort of like position, not possession. Yeah. And just on that contested ball thing quickly... That's very good. I like position, not possession. Well, I hope I came up with it, not him. I'll go back and check my notes. But um, Hawthorne, of course, even in their premiership hat-trick years, never used to rank high for contested ball. They got around it by uh, owning the ball with uncontested possession and kicking efficiency. But they, but they also Hawthorne also sought stoppages. So what they would do is, if they have the ball, if one of their players is about to get tackled, unless he is very confident of getting it to a teammate, he used to, and they worked the system well with free hands, pulling the ball back in, getting the stoppage. Because remember, they had Mitchell and Lewis. So you work to your strengths. And Richmond's strengths is not clearances. They don't have a ruckman that wins hit-outs to advantage. And their midfield, Dustin Martin, he he's, he's not an in-and-under player, even though he's incredibly strong and he looks like an in-and-under player. He's not. He's a get-the-ball-sort-of-on-the-not-receive-it-but-get-it-win-it-one-on-one or get it to him on the outside and burn your opponent. You know, I'll take you on. Yeah. So, look, I think how opponents challenge this dominance is going to be fascinating to watch. And I think one way of doing it, perhaps, is creating stoppages and and controlling them, which isn't necessarily going to be great to watch. The other one is by basically playing keepings off. And Collingwood, when they've troubled them, that's what they've managed to do. Almost the Hawthorne style, to be And isn't it funny? That's how Richmond went from basket case under Hardwick to... A, a marked improvement. Remember when they beat Fremantle over in Perth? 
Yep. I think Fremantle might have been undefeated. Yep. And they just played keepings off. Mm. They tried that for the next couple of years, and it didn't work because they didn't quite have those foot skills, but they were developing them. And in the end, they had not only foot skills, but they had a game plan and players that can execute it. Look, that pickup of Lynch makes them... If he wasn't one of the greatest recruits into one of the best team, more dominant teams you'll ever see... Can you give me an example of a better footballer going to a a clearly top team? Um, probably, yeah, maybe when Brian Lake went to Hawthorne. I'll take Lynch. I mean, Lake was a very good defender, don't get me wrong, but for those people that were kept saying Lynch is the best tall forward, mm. I think he, I think they're right. Yeah, yeah, he's better. Oh, James Frawley, another one, I think, when he went to Hawthorne. Very, um, very important players. All right, uh, well, that's suitably glowing review about the Tigers. How can you be anything else? So you haven't got them winning the flag. Have you got them playing off at least? No, see, the only way I see them not winning the flag is by losing another preliminary. So don't be insulted, Richmond supporters. I actually think you're the best team in the comp. I'm looking for an alternative. I think you'll finish on top. And you did show in 2018, it is very hard still to go back-to-back. Uh, I've got them winning the flag again, not surprisingly, and I think most people will as well. That is newsfeed for this week. Let's talk about matters life, Fanny. Life Hacks. Building a better world. Okay, life, love, loss, uh, lollies. I'm trying to think of L words, obviously, and not... Lunatics. Uh, yeah, well, that's probably uh, could be me very shortly. Uh, kick us off, Finey. What's your first life hack for go, this week? I go back to something that I occasionally integrate in the program, and that is driving etiquette. Ah, oh, yes. yes. And we are slipping here in Melbourne, and I put every driver on warning. If you're driving on a main road, especially now given the congestion we have in Melbourne, those keep clear things that are written on the road, they're not advice or a suggestion. That's a road rule. Mm. It allows people from side streets to get out. I cannot tell you how often now people just stop on them and Mm. are stuck on them, Yeah, which means if you're coming out of the side street, you can't get out. You toot them, and I think they realise in many cases what they've done. They just won't even look at you. Yeah. What's well, what about when that just, happens? Just in don't lo- drive on them. What about when that happens in city intersections? People getting through well, that, the that, lights. If you're stuck in an intersection, if there's a police around, you should be given the long arm of the law. Mm. But keep clear. Only travel over it if you see a, the other side of it. Room for your car. Are you like me and a lot of? I wonder how many people like this. I get really, really pissed off. If you're driving down a street with parked cars, there's a car coming the other way, not room for both. You stop to allow them through, and they don't wave. Oh, the non-wave, the look, non-courtesy. I have wave. moved to a suburb where life is. People just don't do that. Well, life is driving down streets with only room for one car. You you are constantly having to. Not only do I, if I have allowed a car through and they don't wave, mm. part of me says, do a U-turn and run them off the canyon. Yeah. I get so... I don't do that. I get so angry. Yes, yeah, I yeah, But same. I actually really don't like if I give the wave and they don't give me the little acknowledgement back. back. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't no. have to be the full wave. Just yeah. the nod, the... 
Yeah, I, I was going to ask that. Where do you stand on the non-acknowledgement no, of your way? Fully acknowledged and returned. Yeah. What do you do at night when somebody lets you through uh, and it's too dark to... Oh, some people just dip the lights. Do, I do a little flick of the lights yeah. or a tiny two to the horn. Yeah. Tiny. But what about that moment when you... I'm let... blinding somebody to thank them and they <laughs> go into a parked car. What, what about when you stop to let them through and there's... Yeah, there's that moment as they get closer, are they going to wave? Are they going to wave? And if they don't wave and they get closer, you, you better wave. And if they don't, and the other week, I had my son in the car too and someone didn't. And I went like this, yeah. uh, did the two-finger slide oh. out the window because it's, it's I, just I, common courtesy. I mean, you know, honestly, if, if I don't get the wave, I straight away, depending on the gender, give them a an offence, you know. I hate not being waved. Yeah, no, I'm. I made, made the ultimate driving sacrifice of of delaying my trip by up to three seconds. <laughs> <laughs> now I'm like you. It's not not hard to show a bit of courtesy. All right, my first one. Uh, it's in the news. I'm hoping you'll read a bit more about it. By the way, just on that. Sorry, I know I always come in, but I. You do. If if somebody really does something nice, which is like stops traffic to let you through on a side street when they don't have to. Yeah. And I do that. Yeah. I wind down the window and give the thumbs up. Okay. That's the, you know, exposed way. All right. I'll tell you what else is courtesy, Finey. When you finished your one and I start my one, to you let, let, you let me going. go on with it. I'm waving uh, to okay. you now with a middle finger. And I'm waving back. Well, look at the wave. Yeah, no, I've got it. Very yeah, good. good. Get stuffed. Um, <laughs> all, all right, my first one. Uh, hopefully, you're going to read about this in the news. I think you will. Um, I'm really pissed. I'm really angry about this. Oh, that's how you start your ads. I <laughs> know. Oh, um, Paul Parker, the Nelligan Fire Brigade captain, mm-hmm. who famously, at the height of the bushfire crisis, funded up in the truck, said, Are you from the media? Well, tell the Prime Minister to get effed. Yeah. Uh, iconic footage already. He then, you know, minutes later collapsed from exhaustion on the ground. He'd been saving houses all weekend. Um, and there was a story about a week ago about how people kept ringing up and putting money on the tab at the local pub for him. And I thought, oh, yeah, no, good, good. Well, he was interviewed on the project last night and it emerged he's been sacked. Although he did say, I don't know how he can be sacked from a job as a volunteer, but he's basically been given the ass. Which is what I wish would happen to the project. Well, yeah, don't, don't take us down another divergence. <laughs> no, this is an important issue. Seriously, this is important. How can you be sacked from a volunteer firefighter? Well, not job? just that. I mean, okay, yes, he abused the Prime Minister. However, it was a moment of high emotion. Uh, you know, the guy's put his life on the line, save lives, save property continuously at a time when not only the PM was overseas swanning it up in Hawaii, but it made that ridiculous comment about we didn't need more um, firefighting resources because the people who were there want to be there. And he did say that. He said, oh, yeah, we really want to be here, sarcastically. Oh, okay. I, I think... Now, hang on. Well, I haven't finished. I'm, you're getting stuck into the Prime Minister here. No, so no. stick to the topic and don't politicise it. Yeah, okay. No, well, my, my point is this. Um, surely the uh, diplomatic response would have been to let the emotion go, let things cool down a bit, and, and just let it go. Now, I'm not having a go at Morrison here. I'm, I'm not saying Morrison's driven this or whatever, and he hasn't bitten back or anything, so it would be a PR disaster. But someone in charge of that fire crew has obviously said this guy's going to pay, and I just think that's wrong. 
I think that is absolutely wrong. And if this country really prides itself on irreverence and, you know, uh, not kowtowing to authority, but also looking after your mates and, and, and uh, that... Anzac spirit. Yeah, well, this, this guy should not be punished for that moment of high emotion. Of course not. And what a great opportunity for Scott Morrison, who lost a lot of PR points with those, you know... Faux pas. Faux, and, and I think I heard him come back and speak about what he had done and how he handled it, and I think he comes out of this okay, but just okay. What an opportunity for him to step in and say, no, 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 I'm not offended by it. The man's fighting fires. He has to get his position back if he wants it. Well, that's what I hope so happens. Has, has, has one of his advisors and all top politicians and politicians have advised, has somebody not said that to him? Well, they, they, they might have. I mean, this interview only aired last night, but they're crazy if they don't. I, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, all right, that's my first one. Your second one. I saw a movie late on Saturday night on TV that I had not seen. I'd heard about, but it was in the back recesses of my mind because if it was in the forefront of my mind, I should have made an effort to see it or read the book. I think there's a book because I think it, be, it was an important part of studies for many students around our age even, Rowan, and very challenging movie called The Fringe Dwellers. Oh, yeah. It's, no, I don't know that. Yeah, it's it's about an, an indigenous community that lives in a shanty shack type town in northern Queensland, maybe near the town of Sherborg, even though it doesn't directly name the town. And they move into town to get a government house, and in the end, lose that and move back. And it's very interesting. It it's got it shows this family in this community sometimes in a great light, sometimes in not a great light. I think it's pretty for its time honest. And it even shows the white people around them sometimes doing the right thing, sometimes doing the wrong thing. It, I love the way, pardon the expression I use here, that it wasn't black and white. Directed by Bruce Beresford, it takes you back to the 80s, I think. Do you know when it was made? I'm saying the 80s. It feels like the 80s to me. Uh, 1986, as there a matter go. of fact. Thank you very much. And it's just a really honest look. I believe, with a bit of humour, with a bit of pathos, a bit of movie licence thrown in. But generally, you know, it wasn't a rose, you know, it wasn't a, a, a easy picture of the of, of an Aboriginal family, and nor was it a difficult one. It was very good. Okay. The Fringe Dwellers, the 1986, Fringe Dwellers. Bruce Beresford, another yeah. Australian film. And by the way, the cast predominantly in Aboriginals. Mm, Justine Saunders was one of them, yeah. I, I saw. And... Boy, great acting from, yeah. from young kids to very, you know, to elder members of the of the group. What channel was that on? NITV. Ah, oh, right. Okay. Yeah, makes sense. All right, my second one. Um, I'm going into touchy feely type areas. I often don't find any. Now we all laugh about. Uh, uh, yeah, gee, the internet's great, isn't it? People looking at um, cute cat videos and dog videos and stuff. Well, <laughs> it's funny because I. My kids were looking at a meme yesterday, and I said, that is the end of society. We we are in worse than the, the dark ages if they think that that is entertainment. They are idiots. Okay, thanks for uh, setting this up beautifully for me. Um, well, I've been watching a lot of them lately, and um, <laughs> I've been getting quite sentimental about them. And there was one 
last night almost reduced me to tears. And it was a uh, a journo had turned up to do a story on a uh, like a lost dogs place or a dog adoption scheme or something. And this dog, I think it was a Labrador, but it, it just came up and got up on its hind legs and just hugged his leg. And just wouldn't let go, and and was just, and he was patting it, and it was so, it, it was just, it was absolutely heartrending. I mean, the the uh, punchline is that the journal apparently ended up taking the dog home. So beautiful story, but I've, I've, even cat videos, cute cats and stuff, I find myself more and more actually looking at people's Instagram posts of their cats and their dogs and reading stories about my dog did this, my cat did this, and really enjoying it. And I'm thinking, well, am I getting softer in my old age? But I I think it's partly a response to um, the sharpening of society and how sort of mean and nasty life and the world seems to be at the moment that you look at these household pets and their love for their owners and their love for the families that have them is so unconditional and and strong and they are so loyal and uncomplicated there's no manipulation as such and and i i just find that beautiful and simple and um i'm just enjoying things like that more and we you know we, we had a, a dog and a cat both of which we lost and i grieved to um some would say ridiculous levels over both of them we have a, a new cat now lily she's well, a year and a bit old and um just even having her come and sort of snuggle up with you on bed on the bed you know it's just like it touches me in places uh i, I didn't feel i still had operational and, and um i've had my sort of struggles of late in one way or another and um i find it, it gives me a lot of comfort so uh cats and dogs finally I, I love both of them don't take what I'm about to say the wrong way. Okay. First of all, there would be a certain percentage of people listening to this podcast still wiping the tears from their eyes of laughter as I held back. You saw that dog was hugging the yes. guy? You saw? Yes. Wrapped itself around the guy's leg and was hugging him? Yes. Yes, Viney, I'll show you the video. Yes, I know what you're alluding to. No, he wasn't doing that. wasn't humping him. You know, oh, well, I'm just I said that you. in a heartfelt manner. Okay, I just said don't take it the wrong way. I'm just okay, saying. Okay, well, I have. Okay, I'll, that's good. Okay, get number, on with it. No, no, number two, I don't trust people who have cats and dogs. I think you've got to be one or the other. You've got, oh, okay, all right. Cats and dogs. How yeah. do you have a cat and a dog? Um, plenty of people do. I know they and, do. And they, they often, they our cat and our dog uh, had a, beautiful relationship actually they used to sleep you know snuggle up together and um you're you're, you're tempting fate with the natural world i always felt all right i mean I, you did well to train them to do so oh no i think uh, i think when they get used to each other it's fine okay your next one okay my final one is my daughter turned 23 and it's very hard to buy a 23 year old birthday prison but she loves footy and she loves the swans and the last thing I ever thought would be going to an AFL shop to buy her something. But there is a product, and it's not cheap, that I reckon is a ripper. Have you seen the retro jumpers? Uh, what, They're for sale? All, yeah, for all clubs. No, I haven't. Full woolen jumpers. Proper 19, just pre-AFL. Pre They've got the VFL bags on it. Oh, yeah. Uh, so she's a Swans fan, so 
I've got a South Melbourne jumper. It's great. It's got the red V, the red collar, which I love, the red cuffs. Mm. It's a fully woolen jumper. And it's even got whatever their last sponsor was. It's got Wayne Wayne Carroll on the number on the back. What was it? Uh, they were just jeans at one stage. Yeah, I Wayne Carroll, number 18. Yep. Last night, I actually watched St Kilda Sydney, the game where Mark Jackson kicked 10. Oh, what year was that? 1983. Oh, would have been 83, yeah. yeah. By the way, people who think it's a great effort do realise his first four or five goals were on David Winbanks. Strange choice there by South by I, Sydney. I, well, I saw that game um, about a week ago, the famous comeback at the SCG, when yeah. they were still six goals down with like seven minutes to play. I mean, this was a great game because it, it, there was a goal the difference of much of the last quarter. Sydney kicked away, but... Interesting you should mention Wayne Carroll. This was supposed to be the Grudge game because it was the return of Fashini and Morwood to, you know, to Sydney. Oh, yes, yes. Only one player made it a Grudge game. Who was that? Wayne Carroll knocked Morwood down and must have punched him in the head. Not hard punches. He just laid into him with both fists. Really? Yeah, he really disliked him. Okay, my last life hack. Actually, uh, okay, you, you've had a decent old whack at me. Just before I do my last one, I'm going to have a decent old whack at you. Whack away. We have had an email during the week from one of our favourite listeners and an old colleague of mine, Eric Ellis, who is uh, parked overseas doing some wonderful freelance journalism. But he's a very learned man, Eric, and he contacted me during the week, finally, to tell us this, to remind us again how much he loves the podcast and our take on stuff. Um, but he did say that, uh, that all said, the usually estimable fine he made three howlers this week, which the journalist, years in Asia, foreign correspondent in me, must point out, pedantically perhaps, but I think importantly. One, Bangladesh didn't get its independence from India in our lifetimes, as Finey claimed. It got it from Pakistan. Or more correctly, it separated from the wider Pakistani state after winning a nasty independence war in 1971. Modern Bangladesh was formerly called East Pakistan, and what we today know as Pakistan was therefore known as West Pakistan. The two of them formed in 1947 when colonial power Britain granted independence to India and Pakistan and divided the subcontinental Raj into mostly Hindu, Indian and mostly Muslim Pakistan. Okay, correct. They're, they're all cricketers, aren't they? Correction number one. You're not weaseling out of this. Okay. Number two, the concert for Bangladesh in 1971. Hey, well, you brought that up. Yeah, but... You said it was for flood relief. It wasn't. It was primarily to support refugees from the independence war, some who admittedly had also been victims of natural disasters and genocide at the hands of the Pakistan government. Look up Operation Searchlight. I just remember as a kid, they they sang that song, Mellow, you know, they call me Mellow Yellow. Yeah, that was, uh, I'll get this one wrong. That's right. Donovan? I don't know. I think it was. But there was... It was I'm just wild about, about saffron. saffron. And it was to do with uh, uh, funds for Bangladesh. And I just remember as a little kid seeing families wading knee-deep in water. And well, I, thought, I thought it was flood. I remember George Harrison was involved with it. That's about all I remember. But per- perhaps your most grievous error... It was the drinking of Heineken, not Budweiser, as Finey claimed, that so upset Dennis Hopper's character in Blue Velvet. Yeah. 
to speak to the zeitgeist theme of your weekly reach into yesteryear, 1986 was about when yuppies in the US embraced the fashion of drinking imported beers as a fashion, a badge of supposed sophistication and as a visible point of separation with redneck drinkers of cheap local beers. It was. He stood there and he said, Heineken, F that S. Obviously using all the swear words. And what the one he drank was what? Pabst Blue yeah, Ribbon. P-A-B-S-T. Yeah, I told you, I bought, I bought a slab of it at, from the bottle shop in Ackland Street for $80. Imagine $80 all those years ago. It was, it was a, a fortune, and it's the cheapest beer. They drank it in the movie because it was cheap. Well, he says, I think that was the social point David Lynch was making, the interplay between preppy Cole McLaughlin and the Hopper character. Perhaps a premonition of those who put Trump in the White House 30 years on and might keep him there. Also, he just, as a footnote, he says, having recently reported from Dakar, the Bangladesh capital, I can confirm it is an overcrowded dump. An interesting <laughs> one, but a dump nevertheless. And, uh, yeah, thanks for that, Eric. And uh, I have replied to that email and said thanks because uh, a premonition, perhaps, that you were going to have a crack at me. So I had some ammunition to crack back. Um, okay, last life hack. You're not interrupting this one. It's very disposable. I'm going to do it quickly. I have decided, finally, the chocolate is the food of the devil. That is because uh, I have done pretty well, I reckon, over the last couple of months. I've lost a fair bit of weight. Really well. Like, now, visibly annoying me because mm, I'm going to be heavier than you. Yeah, uh, up to about 12 kilos down now from when I started. And uh, I've done this via a number of means, which I won't bore you with. But one of them, I've got to say, is simply staying away from chocolate. And I cannot... Eat chocolate in moderation. This is what I've discovered. The few times in this period uh, I've had a basket full of individual chocolates offered to me, I can't just take one. I take one and eat it, and then I take another one and another one and another one and another one. Is there any other way? Uh, well, I just can't stop. I literally cannot stop eating chocolate once I start. So the best way of curtailing that is not to have it at all. Um, I love chocolate dearly. It is beautiful and, uh, uh, sorry, I should qualify this, not dark chocolate. I hate dark chocolate. Uh, White chocolate? What? Oh, yeah, no, I like white chocolate. Yeah, but it's pretty sweet, but I like it. But uh, anything uh, milk chocolate, I'm there. Uh, Just cannot eat it. I have to stay away from it. So every time, of course, I buy petrol or something, you go into those stores and the front counter just overflowing with chocolate treats. I just have to avert my eyes. Uh, chocolate, for me, definitely the food of the devil. Augustus. Oh, no, Augustus. What? What's well, he couldn't resist chocolate. He ended up falling in the chocolate river. Because oh, sorry. I couldn't remember the characters' names. Yeah, right. Augustus. Which one was he? Yeah, he was, was the first one. He was a German kid that fell in the oh, river. Oh, yeah, he was pretty plump, wasn't yeah, he? Yeah, he got yeah. stuck in the tube. Yeah. <laughs> he'd, be, he'd be destroyed. He'd be... Cut to pieces, whatever. And no, don't be silly, madam. He's going to the marshmallow room. He'll be roasted. <laughs> he won't be shredded. He won't be shredded. He'll be roasted. All right, that is life hacks for this week. Uh, let's go back. Oh, don't correct me on that, by the way, Eric. I know I got that wrong. I just was throwing it in. <laughs> let's step back in time. Vinyl and video. Pressing rewind on our favourite music, movies and TV. 
All right, Finey. Well, it seems to be the uh, week for feedback because I did have some feedback about the vinyl and video segment and uh, I thought about it and I thought, yep, fair enough. And it was from one of our younger listeners and he said, fair fair cop, Gov. I don't know why I've lapsed into that sort of pseudo-English accent, but he was basically saying any chance that your younger listeners could um, join in on a year, uh, they're actually uh, on this planet. Fair enough. And uh, the the latest year, we've only had one venture into the 21st century. We did 2002 a few weeks back. So I thought about this and I thought we should do something more recent. So younger listeners, we have taken on board your pleas. But just a caveat, it is vinyl and video, so it's sort of by definition, is in an era of vinyl. Well, vinyl is coming back. I'm not sure video will, but uh, vinyl definitely is. So what year have you chosen? 2009. Any particular reason for 2009? Let me tell you, when I started looking at the choices, you can be rest assured that there was no research done into the year prior. Okay. wasn't well, strong in a couple of areas. Yeah, well, I must admit, as soon as I heard it, I thought, uh, it's going to be more of a struggle than usual. But uh, we... See, I expected movies to be great. There are movies around that time, mm. to, you know, 2010, 11, can be brilliant, but I just don't think it was a strong year for movies. Yeah. I, I think we found a couple of good ones. Yeah, I do too. Well, let's start with music, as as we do. Um, I've, I've seen your choice, so I'm not going to spoil the party on this. Uh, some notable albums out of 2009. Pearl Jam lobbed with uh, another one, Backspacer. Uh, Muse um, had an album called The Resistance. One of my favourite bands, The Church, delivered Untitled number 23. Uh, Green Day had an album, uh, what was that, 21st Century Breakdown. Uh, a band not that well known but uh, an American band I quite like Taking Back Sunday had uh, my favourite album of theirs called New Again um, He Is Legend another American band I've discovered uh, sort of uh, that southern rock sound It Hates You was their album and Alice in Chains um, perhaps surprisingly to a lot of people uh, given the death of Lane Staley reformed with a new lead singer William Duval and bought out an album, Black Gives Way to Blue. And they've now had three albums with uh, Duval on lead vocals, and all really strong. So uh, good, uh, all the best to Alice in Chains, who keep delivering. Um, Did anything happen outside grunge and harder rock? Ah, yes, of course. The charts by now, dominated by dance and... and, And Women. uh, Yeah. This was the sort of burgeoning pestilence that is either Beyonce or Gaga or... It just, it's just—it's—it's like a war between the same entity, but it takes different forms. Well, hence why I probably was ignoring the charts. But my pick for album of 2009, and uh, this is the album that put me onto this band. I did go and see him as a result. Another Canadian band, finally. You know I like my Canadian music. Flashdance. For Flash, what was it called? That new, new Canadian band? Flash dance, not flash dance, something flash, <laughs> quarter flash. Oh, harden my heart. Yeah, they're Canadian, aren't they? I don't know. I didn't. Anyway, I felt they were Canadian. Um, the band is Alexis on Fire, and the album is called Old Crows, Young Cardinals. Now, finey, stop playing on your phone. I know that they are a really interesting band. Um, three key members. I think there's five of them, but the three key members. George Petit on vocals, and Petit he is not. He is a big, big bearded man with a huge voice. 
Dallas Green, guitar and vocals. Um, this is where the magic of Alexis on Fire lies because George uh, is a real throaty, shouty singer in that sort of screamo style. Huge voice, though. And Dallas Green has one of the most beautiful singing voices I've ever heard, quite high-pitched. And those two completely contrasting voices in harmony just sound fantastic. And there is a third member with a great singing voice, Wade McNeil, also guitarist. And the three of them uh, at stages will uh, do lead vocals for portions of a track, and it's a, a great combination. How would you sum up their music? It's sort of post-hardcore. So it is, it's not thrashy. I think there's a real poppy quality to it, but still quite heavy. And I think that probably reached its apex on this album, um, 2009. Uh, my favourite tracks, the title track, Old Crows, um, Sons of Privilege, which is a scathing diatribe about the US. I love that song. Born and Raised, which I think was a single. Midnight Regulations. Um, and that song, Finey, and another song, Emerald Street, I've written down here because this is how good the harmonies are. They have a listen to it, particularly, say, Emerald Street. The harmonies uh, sound like the Beach Boys. You know how great their harmonies were. I don't really like the Beach Boys. But, um, boy, they could harmonise. That's how good the sound is, all with sort of a hardcore musical background. It is a great album. If you haven't heard Alexis on Fire, check this album out. Old Crows, <laughs> Young Cardinals. Out. Yes, Molly, check yes. this out. No, well, I, I get enthusiastic about it. It is a great album, and I, I still... Uh, 11 years on now, play it very frequently. Not being a fan of the band, maybe I will be because you gave it a good rap. When I hear the term Old Crows, mm. I think of Blighty's Clear Out. <laughs> you know, when he sort of turned the heat on McGinnis yeah, yeah, and yeah. McDermott. And yeah. No, I, I think of a um, person living across the street from us who, who sort of looks a bit... Crow. Well, she sort of looks a bit like one. <laughs> All right, come on, your choice. Okay, before I give you my album choice, because you have sort of um, encouraged me, and I think it's fair enough to look at albums because it's a wider choice and gives our listeners more of an opportunity maybe to hook into music, really. Yes. Among the, what I consider a lot of, and look, I should say that Gaga and Beyonce both have their talents. They are both at the top end of female performers because they are great live performers, great voices, but they do... Oh, Gaga can act as well. She's very impressive in A Star Is Born. So, you know, they are genuine superstars, but to me it just gets pumped out or at that point in time was getting pumped out like tap water but amongst all these female talents and and fighting for air is one super talent that i think had her famous um world awakening in 2009 is alicia keys oh yeah beautiful beautiful pianist wonderful voice combined with jay-z for an empire state of mind Mm. which is a beautiful song about new york if you like new york and i love new york it takes you to a, a, a lovely place. So I think that's a great song, 2009. My album, though, is not of the similar genre. I once again defer to, but a very important album. What is a genre first? The, the genre that I've uh, chosen. Correct. It is industrial German death rock. Ah, uh, I think I know where this is going. It's certainly not craft work. No, that's original electro-pop, the, yeah. the originals, really. Uh, this is, of course, Ramstein, one of my favourite bands. 
I've got a broad church, don't I? I you like, do, you do. It's I like impressive. Garth, from, I like Garth Brooks as well. It's impressive. Uh, so Ramstein had not released an album for four years, and in 2009 they lease, released an album, Liebe ist alle da, which means love is for everybody. Their album titles are sometimes um, ironic. This album was real return for four years, no albums had their fans pining and everybody was wondering what direction they were taking. This is classical previous and thereafter Ramstein. There are a couple of ballads that almost sound like Teutonic dirges and if you don't know the words, you'd think that they were up to no good. You know, they sound like things you don't want to hear, but they're lo- they are... They are what they would call their, their their ballads. Can I just chip in quickly? Four years isn't necessarily a long time between albums. I'm no, a Mark yeah. of Cain fan. I waited 12 years for albums. But it yeah. is for the highly uh, they're productive. They're prolific, are they? Yeah, okay. Ramstein. All right, yep. But they were focusing on live tours, which was also a, a hallmark of their career. Now, the number one hit off the album, and it is was a hit, it was a song called High Fish. High Fish is the German word for shark. And the words are interesting. It says, uh, you know, a shark. It basically talks about a shark being a predator, but a shark cries as well. But in salt water, you can't see its tears. I don't know what all that means, but they sing it pretty me- powerfully. It was a controversial album because it, one song on it, and it's called Ich Tier und Something, is, was taken off the album in Germany. They weren't allowed to release that single. Elsewhere they were because it advocates unprotected sex. Oh, really? Yeah, it talks about sex being better without a condom. That's not very responsible. <laughs> well, they're not all that responsible a band. Um, it's classic Ramstein. I love it. And let me tell you, unlike the good case you made for Alexis on Fire... Alexis on Fire, yeah. Which sounds interesting. If you don't like Ramstein, I can't sell you on it. Okay. I, I, so no, it's, a, it's a hardcore album. I think people have either heard of Ramstein or heard... Mm. A lot of people have heard 10 seconds of it and will never listen to any more again. Yeah. I'm not going to be able to convince them to listen to this album, that's for sure. It's all right. It's your choice, Fanny, and uh, we appreciate but, your uh, support of it. It's nice when we suggest something to that might pique somebody's interest. This is only... This is for hardcore fans, only. Okay. <laughs> All right, let's go on to movies. Now, uh, I'll, I'll throw up a few that came out this year. Yeah, I think we both agree. Not a great year for movies necessarily. Some massive ones, though. Avatar, one Did of the... You, I, I liked it, but it, I, I don't think it stands the test of confession time. Confession time. Haven't seen it. No. <laughs> yeah, it was 3D. It was in Everyone's the, blue, aren't they? Just not made, everyone. Well, it made, the, made me think the of the Smurfs. Are, it really... That Five reminds me of an Avatar. I know I said Rory McIlroy before, but yeah. big hand they they giant, they're very athletic, and they had big hands and big feet. Okay. So Avatar, one of the highest grossing films of all time. One film I have seen and did enjoy, but um, to be honest, I can't remember a heap about it, Inglorious Bastards. I did not like it. Ah, that's Tarantino, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, look, I, I'm... It's a bit. It's, I find Tarantino a bit style over substance. Yeah, look, I'm a child of Holocaust survivors. Oh, and I yeah, lost okay. my family there, and and it's a great, you know, it's sort of what you wish happened, but it didn't happen. And yeah, it's it's yeah, fanciful. Uh, up in the air um, with uh, 
George Clooney. I think that did pretty well. That's uh, funny because, <laughs> okay, you're about to say the next one. Yeah. The animated movie yeah. Up. Yeah. I didn't see Up in the Air, but Up was good. Well, I didn't see either of them. Yeah. Um, but they both had good reviews and I'd heard of them, so I thought they must have done pretty well. Uh, one I have seen, and again, I've seen everything in this franchise and enjoyed them all, but I can't tell you anything peculiar to this one, Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince. Have you watched Harry Potter? Uh, They're pretty good. I watched the first one. I think I read the first one. Mm. And then I quickly got a sense that I'm being George Lucas here. This thing's just being stretched out. Tell the tell the friggin' story, you know. It's <laughs> they just went too long for me. Uh, no, I've I've enjoyed them all, but I did watch them with the kids. And a film I saw on a plane some years later, but a really good film. I thought The Blind Side. Um, That's a great film. Is that two thousand and nine? Yeah. Oh, that that would go close. No, no, I'm happy with my choice. Okay. Sandra Bullock won the Academy Award for. Oh, that. did she? That's a great story because it, yeah. it's about an NFL. And he's a real player. And then I went yeah. and watched him play, and he's a good sort of defensive. So, for people not familiar with it, plot in a nutshell? Uh, in a city, urban, living in America, and African-Americans can struggle. And this kid, th- this mother was sort of taking her kids to school and from a fortunate part of the town and just noticed this huge kid sort of wandering around the streets and obviously not getting a good education and just took an, an interest in him and... and his mother, sadly, he didn't have a father. His mother was a crack addict. And they took him in as their own, only to find out that he was brilliant at football, but very shy and non-academic. So they had to get his academic levels up before a university could take him. And that was their real battle. And and he calls, you know, he calls her mum. And she's a little skinny white person. And it's a true story. And when he got drafted, you know, he had his little mum there and she's a, a tyro who fought for him and fought for him when really he was being thrown on the on the on the um sort of garbage heap of life because the two hard basket from, from a crime riddled neighbourhood, which meant he was going to be a criminal. And because he was huge, everybody was scared of him. I'll tell you what the Australian equivalent of that is, and um if people didn't read it at the time they should. Anthony McDonald Tip and Wooty. Now we know he was adopted and uh, his, his adoptive mother, um, I'm trying to remember her first name, is it Jane, um, took him in. But Hamish um, McLaughlin did a fantastic Q&A with him during the season and the level of neglect uh, of Tipper or Waller um, growing up mm. in the in the Tiwi Islands is just you you got to read it. Uh, amazing how he's got to the point he has. Anyway, I still haven't seen <laughs> my movie. movie yeah. uh, one more which I quite enjoyed. I love you, man. Which is the sort of thanks. Um, yeah, well, it's a, a buddy movie with uh, Paul Rudd and uh, Jason um, Segal or Siegel. Um, the worst actor ever. Uh, yeah, well, it's it's a bit sort of toy the movie, but basically Paul Rudd has to find a mate. He hasn't really got a mate who can become best man in his wedding. And they bond over their mutual uh, interest in the band Rush, who actually appear in the film. No so, wonder you like it. Yeah, no, it's it's not great, but it's, it's you know, it's passable. Uh, the movie I've gone with is a spin-off of the UK comedy series The Thick of It. And anyone familiar with it, as soon as I said it, will be going, oh, yes. And anyone who doesn't know it, you must watch it. If you've watched Veep, 
and enjoyed it, and I've gone on a lot about Veep, you must watch The Thick of It because it's the English equivalent written by the same guy, Armando Iannucci. Careful, he's had a shocker recently. Oh, yes. It's not being continued, by the way. They're getting rid of Avenue 5. Correct. Um, but uh, no doubt about either Veep or The Thick of It. Um, and In the Loop is a movie, uh, not spin-off, it's essentially the same uh, car- uh, no, it's the same main characters, but uh, the plot is basically um, a piss take on the uh, invasion of Iraq and uh, the British basically uh, do a joint sort of uh, information gathering task force with their US equivalents, uh, either depending on their agendas, looking for evidence to justify the invasion of Iraq or looking for evidence to prevent the invasion of Iraq. And uh, it's all about political spin and um, uh, absolutely superb performance from Peter Capaldi playing the absolutely foul-mouthed Scottish uh, media advisor to the British Prime Minister Malcolm Tucker, uh, one of the great comedy characters. Also in the film, in the loop, uh, Tom Hollander, who plays uh, Simon Foster, the uh, Minister for Interior Development. Gina McKee plays uh, Simon Foster's advisor. James Gandolfini plays a grotesque, fat US general called uh, George Miller. Uh, Chris Anderson plays another advisor, uh, Toby Wright. And, uh, yeah, basically satirising the Anglo-American political sphere. It's basically just a platform for... I mean, the plot is almost incidental. It's just a a vehicle for some incredible uh, script writing and and gags. And uh, Peter Capaldi playing Malcolm Tucker. If your first exposure to Peter Capaldi was watching him as Doctor Who you're going to be sort of taken aback by this because you cannot go two seconds without uh, one expletive or the other, which is sort of unfortunate because there's a a great slab of dialogue, which is typical, which I wanted to recite. Oh, boy. I'm not sure I can. I'll I'll do what I I can without sort of the key bits. But basically, he's having an argument with um, Gina McKee's character about whether he can conscript her minister to do something or order him around, and she sort of takes him on ill-advisedly and reminds him that uh, what he's seeking to do falls within my purview, to which his response is, within your purview? Where do you think you are in some effing Regency costume drama? This is a government department, not a Jane Uffen Austen novel. Allow me to pop a jaunty white bonnet on your purview and ram it up the with a lubricated horse. <laughs> I mean, this is really sort of yes minister in the real world. Isn't X-rated it? yes minister. It's in the real world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is. It's um. It, it and that quite incidentally, if you, I've piqued your interest enough. Just uh, type in "best of Malcolm Tucker" and there's a like a 15 minute YouTube clip which will give you a pretty good idea. It's very, very funny. Directed by Armando Iannucci. Great writing. Great acting. Uh, it's a lot of fun. In the loop. I'm going to stay in the UK. First of all, for my special mention. This movie is not my favourite movie, but I reckon when they had the idea for this movie, it's a great idea. It's hard to execute, but they did pretty well, though it can become annoying. Did you ever see Ricky Gervais' The Art of Lying? No. I've ne- in fact, I've never seen him in anything except The Office. Okay, so it's a movie in which uh, there's no lying in the world. 
It's a world where lying just doesn't exist. And then one day this shitty salesman that's no good at his job just starts lying. But everybody believes it because there's no concepts of lying. And he becomes a sage, a, a, a god, because he tells people what they want to hear. <laughs> and he has this huge following. You know, and he, t- he tries to explain heaven. And there's like hundreds of people. It's like the scene of life of Brian talking to the followers. What happens to us when we die? And, and he starts saying, well, good people will go to heaven and bad people to hell. What's a bad person? Somebody does something bad. So what if I punch somebody in the nose? Am I going to hell? And he has to try and define it for every single person. He goes, look, heaven is somewhere where they've got every flavor of ice cream you've ever wanted. That every, you could ever imagine. So he goes, well, I just imagine snot ice cream. Have they got snot ice cream? Uh, I imagine vomit ice cream. He can't control the pandemic that is lying to honest people, what it, what it opens up. Isn't there a film like that with Jim Carrey or someone about... Well, it's like the remote control. I don't know. Something, yeah. They use a remote control to... No, it's one where he can't he Yeah, can't, can't he can't lie. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, yeah. No, but it's sort of the opposite. He... This is a person who lies in a world of truth, yes. where Jim Carrey can't lie in a world of lying. I bet it's not Jim Carrey and we'll get It corrected. is Jim Carrey. Oh, is it? I'm yeah, pretty sure okay. it is. Okay, but my favourite movie is The Damned United. Oh, yes, I've seen it. It's a ripper. It's a great movie for sports fans, English football fans, and it just happens that my mates, Bollocks, who I've mentioned before, Two Smiles, Nigel, they're all from Leeds. They're all Barry for Leeds. So you reckon I haven't seen this movie 14 times. It's always playing at Bollocks' place. Yeah. It's about the 44 days that Brian Clough spent at Leeds United. He had won the title. With In Dun- 75? 74, 75? Yep, I think so. I think, yeah. I think thereabouts. He'd won the title with Derby County. An amazing effort because Derby County, he started managing in the second division. Yeah. He actually then moved to Brighton and Hove Albion briefly, but was snapped up by the biggest club in England at the when time. Leeds. Don Ravy Don took Ravy the was appointed. England job. So Don Ravy was the powerhouse behind Leeds, and you can almost call him an Alex Ferguson type yeah. figure at Leeds. So very hard to replace. Brian Clough, one of the quirkiest, strangest uh, managers, people of all time. As a reference to that. Type into your Google, if you want to have a laugh, Dean Saunders, Brian Clough Radio, and you will have seven minutes of hilarity that tells you what sort of person Brian Clough was. But it was 44 Days of Mayhem. The movie also takes you back to his successes at Derby and creates a bit of the tension that he and Reevee had in, a, in an FA Cup game between Derby County and Leeds and also a game when Derby County got promotion. It also ends on a famous talk show where Brian Clough and Don Reavy appeared simultaneously. Mm. And Brian Clough kept sort of intimating that he had no idea why Don Reavy wouldn't like him and why he was sacked. And Reavy made it clear because you never won the players over um, because you're, you know, because he, Reavy portrayed himself as a people person who cared about people and Clough as somebody who only cared about himself. The movie has a different slant and tells you after that that Reevee, after failing with England, never coached again in England and went to the Middle East That's seeking right. money. Although, I mean, isn't the first thing Clough does when he turns up at Ellen Road is to he 
addresses tells the players and he says, I think throw, you, you yeah. won your titles he by said, cheating. He said, all your medals and yeah. all your trophies. He thought that they were a very dirty side. Yeah. He said, throw them all away. They were won by cheating, by you know, hacking players down. You should be ashamed of yourself. And then he demeaned them by making them play seven aside, which is really a junior train. You don't... Great players don't go out and play seven aside to see who's the best player, you know. And they just hated him. Yeah. But, but that was their reputation, though. I mean, I started watching soccer when they were top dog, though, were they in Liverpool. But was that their reputation as a hard, dirty side? Hard. Billy Bremner. Yeah. Hard man. Archie Gamble. Yes, they were, they were known as a forceful team. Mm. The postscript of the movie is to sort of... The final thing you see on the screen is this giant slogan, Brian Clough, the greatest manager England never had. A shot at Don Reavy. Because post his sacking at Leeds, mm. one thing about Brian Clough, he was incredibly resilient. He got a great payout from Leeds, but he had been publicly shamed. The best manager to the best team in England. Well, then what did he do? Well, then he went to Nottingham Forest, who were not the best team. He won the title, <laughs> and he won two European Cups Amazing. in a row, which is like UEFA League now. Well, I'm pretty sure, hang on, I, I think this is right. I think they got promoted from second division and won the first division title in the first season they were promoted. Like Derby County. Amazing. And two European Cups yeah. in a row. Yeah, no, I remember, and they had some fantastic players. Yeah, when he had, he he is incredibly quirky, but he also saw things in footballers. So players who had nominally been left-backs became attacking wingers. He changed positions for players at the right times in their career, which was very unusual at the time, mm. and turned... Strike failed strikers into effective midfielders because he had belief in them and those players owed their careers to him. So when it worked, it was great. It's a great movie and the best thing about the movie is he's played by Michael Sheen, who I think is the best autobiographical actor of our times. He played Frost in Frost Nixon. Oh, yeah. He famously played Blair in a number of movies. Yeah. Tony Blair. Yeah. He's really, to me... Brian Clough, because yeah. I know Brian Clough, what he looked like and how yeah, he talked, yeah. brilliant. Yeah. No, it is a really, really enjoyable movie and a fascinating storyline, and what makes it better in a lot of ways is it's true. It all happened unbelievably. And also Timothy, Spall, Timothy Spall's in it. Isn't he a great character actor? Timothy Spall, you'd, you'd recognise him. Playing who? Peter Taylor. Who oh, was, yeah, he's offside. He's yeah. famous offsider at Derby County. Yeah. Who he had a falling out with. Yeah. And literally walked on his knees to ask forgiveness <laughs> of him. All right. Uh, the Damn United and uh, In the Loop, two movies from 2009, well worth checking out. We've got to uh, press on here. TV. Yeah, it was pretty um, slim pickings for me, Finey. Uh, you, well, you took a brilliant show off my plate. Oh, left, sorry. But left me with a brilliant show. All right, well, you go first with your show. Okay, this show has just been given an 11th season. And honestly, after one season, nobody knew if it would get a second. It's a animated, I think the best animation animated series I've ever seen. Beautiful artwork. Hilarious Hilarious concept, great voice actors, Archer. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sterling Archer is a handsome, uh, sex-craved, hardly loyal to his partner, super spy, working for his mother's agency, Mallory Archer, 
Um, now, the vo- H. H. John Benjamin is the voice of Archer. He also plays Bob in Bob's Burgers, much loved by many people. And there's actually a crossover episode. The mother is played by the same mother from Arrested Development, Jessica Walton. Oh, yeah, yeah, very good. Same character almost, hilarious, you know, sort of has a son but uh, loves him but at at arm's length and more interested in her her own sex life. There's a cast of associated characters, beautifully drawn, many of them sexy. This is adult stuff, you know, a lot of sexual reference, a lot of sex in it. Um, animated sex. Yeah, well, you don't, you know, not full, not Felix the cat, but you know, I'm talking, I'm talking threesomes. I'm talking woman, woman, you, you name it. There's a lot of different relationships in it. Man with robot, man with female robot, man with robot who ends his marriage because the robot left her vagina in the sink. <laughs> um, so these things are part of the program. Now, interestingly, some series are ten or thirteen. Individual episodes, all self-contained stories. Other series, like um, Archer Vice, is 11 episodes, all of one story. The last three series have been Archer in a coma, so they've been able to go back in time. So it's been Archer in the 30s, Archer Space 1999. They've really travelled around time. The new series goes back to a more traditional Archer, they say, just one episode's in the current time. And that's what's most interesting about Archer. Archer visually is set in the 70s, maybe, or 80s. Furniture, cars, but it has technology of the 2020. It's a mix of times. It's hard to nail down what time it is. It's brilliant, it's funny, and it's still going. Where can you find it? Uh, look, it's the company that distributes it is FX, and now FXX, which means that you get it on... You used to, you can get it as it's produced on Foxtel, on cable, on pay TV. Okay, so but, it's on Foxtel. But ABC have also taken it on their comedy channel, and you'll see older older series on free to view ABC comedy. All right, Archer, one of those things I've, I've heard about it, haven't seen it, but on that recommendation, I am inspired to check it out. I've gone something uh, for something pretty mainstream, I've got to say. Uh, some other notable series, uh, only seen one of these, Parks and Recreation, which uh, has a, a pretty strong following. Mad Men, people uh, are devotees of Mad Men. Again, haven't seen it, but it has a very good rap. Can I just say with Mad Men, I never watched it when it was on, and then I saw a couple of episodes and ended up watching the entire run of Mad Men in eight days, which was almost men. I had to watch it non-stop. Okay, and, and thumbs up? Magnificent. All right. Uh, the Good Wife is another series which a lot of people swear by, uh, uh, about a uh, scorned wife of the, uh, is he president or a, just an American politician? However, I have gone with Modern Family. Um which uh, final season, I think it's about to go to air, 11 seasons, 245 episodes. Are they pulling the pin? I think it's the last season. Um, written by uh, Christopher Lloyd, who uh, wrote Frasier, and uh, prior to that also wrote uh, or co-wrote The Golden Girls. So uh, he's, got, um, he's got a pretty handy CV. Set up, um, I'm sure everyone's seen a bit of uh, of, uh, Modern Family, set up like a mockumentary, which uh, I really like that format. 
stars. Uh, Ed O'Neill, of course, playing Jay Pritchett, the uh, patriarch of the um, of the family. His second wife, Sofia Vergara, played by the very buxom Gloria Delgado, who I'm slightly in love with. Uh, his Ed's, uh, sorry, Jay's daughter, Claire Dunphy, played by uh, Julie Bowen. Her husband, Phil Dunphy, played by Ty Burrell. Uh, Jay's son, Mitchell, uh, Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and Eric Stone Street, playing Cameron Tucker, basically revolves around three families, all offshoots from Jay Pritchett's uh, character. What I like, one of the things I like about this is that Mitchell, his son Mitchell, and his partner Cameron, yes, they are a gay couple. But um, one of the first sort of gay characters I remember seeing in a sitcom in which them being gay wasn't the main point of their character's existence. It was just a, a fact, if that makes sense. You know what I'm getting at, don't you? I mean, his homosexuality wasn't a big deal. It was just he was. Yeah, it's, it's and I like that. It wasn't like Will and Grace, you know, where that was the whole sort of point of it. There are elements where it comes to play, and they use it sometimes to their advantage. And mm. it's modern family is re- a real sort of comedic take on the real setup of a family. And I think the early seasons, particularly, the writing is great, and it's genuine laugh out loud stuff. I think it uh, even then, actually, there were moments where it was all a bit twee and a bit. Cheesy for my liking. I'm not sure the quality has been maintained over the duration, but 11 seasons, nearly 250 episodes, it's a pretty big ask to maintain that quality for that long. So overall, I'd definitely give it a thumbs up. I think it's uh, it, it's a pretty funny show uh, with some good acting, good characters, and a good script. I absolutely resisted watching it because I saw the mockumentary element, you know, where they talk to yeah, camera. Yeah, And I thought that that was just a sort of cheap take on maybe an arrested development mm. boy how wrong was i i have never first of all full credit to them half hour program and on virtually every episode every character appears that's very hard to do so all of those characters you mentioned and their children who are major characters appear in every episode mm. that's Tight writing, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Yeah, no, it's it's well written, absolutely. Modern Family I mean, and the Archer. Ama- the amazing thing with Modern Family is, like Eric Stone Street, who's not gay, by the way, his character Cam is a steel, uh, uh, scene-stealing... It's br- I love that character, don't you? Yeah, yeah, he's good. On an ensemble program like that, that could easily dominate the show. Mm. But it doesn't, because all the characters are great. Yeah, it's no. brilliantly written. All right, uh, there's enough for vinyl and video this week. 2009, so I hope you young'uns are satisfied with the dip into the more recent past. All right, Finey, let's finish off with a good rant. On Footyology, the rant off. Okay, I'm ready to go. Um, this one isn't necessarily angry. It uh, may be, you may find it somewhat surprising. Then I'll introduce you in a surprising manner. One, two, three. I'm pissed off with the same stuff I was pissed off with a few weeks ago, Finey, but now I'm worried as well as pissed off. What am I talking about? I don't really know, which could be a sign of my advancing senility, but it's also probably a sign that I've been consuming too many mind-addling substances, and by that, I mean a genre of music I once swore I'd never touch, whether I was 21 or 101. Yes, Finey, I'm talking about yacht rock. What is it? 
Well, if you have to ask, you clearly didn't grow up in a time of countdown, 3XY, and Christopher Cross's Ride Like the Wind, seemingly on a loop any time you stumbled upon a transistor radio. Yacht Rock, for the uninitiated, is what was formerly known as adult-oriented rock or the West Coast sound. Think Christopher Cross, the Doobie Brothers when fronted by Michael McDonald, Toto, Pablo Cruz, Steely Dan, etc., etc. Think lots of white suits, beards, film clips in sunny Californian waters, scantily clad girls in bikinis, and endless supplies of suspicious-looking white powder. Think polished production and musicians who are actually proficient on their instruments. Yep, it's music from that long ago. Now, anyone our vintage finey couldn't last five minutes when they were a kid without hearing the doobies, What a Fool Believes, or Criss Cross's Sailing, the slickness dripping off every note. It's no wonder so many of us embrace crunching guitar riffs and lyrics about smashing the capitalist state as a result. Disturbingly, though, I'm just not hating it like I used to. Far from it. Indeed, a curious thing happened on Saturday night. I suddenly had an urgent need to hear the entire roll call of Doobie Brothers hits. Not just the one I mentioned before, but taking it to the streets, Blackwater and Real Love. And off I went down that old YouTube rabbit hole. Before I knew it, Toto's Hold the Line was being played for a third consecutive time. Africa, Rosanna, I willingly submitted myself to Love Will Find A Way, and as I delved into Michael McDonald's solo catalogue, I joined a long queue of people asking the question, is he the blackest white man who ever sang? I managed to draw the line at the Eagles though, Finey, and I still hope never to hear Hotel California in its entirety again as long as I live. But let's be honest, these cats could really play. And in this day and age, we're even to long for a basic song structure rather than a series of tape sound effects, loops, and various grunts and moans as to invite the cat call of OK Boomer. Even that is worthy of some acknowledgement. Those genuinely concerned for my well-being need not be too worried. There's only so much yacht rock one can take before the polish becomes too sickly sweet, the white pants and boat shoes too easily stained, and all that cocaine has completely and utterly destroyed the nasal passages. But it is time also that I acknowledge my inner old codger finey. Yacht rock is not the song of Satan, so I'd best be on my way. I need to feel that Californian breeze in my hair. And as the patron saint of the genre reminded me again last night, I've got such a long way to go to make it to the border of Mexico. Look at you softening at the edges. I oh, know, it's disturbing. It is disturbing. I don't know what's going on. But I'll tell you, they could play funny. I did drag it. I'm being quite serious here. I found a live clip of the Doobie Brothers playing Real Love um, in about 1982. And that, that song, keyboards, three-part harmonies, sax, uh, it's got so many components to it. And they, it was just seamless. They are such good musos, these guys. And, um, boy, did they take a powerful amount of drugs. So, and it, so it's true. The background music of our, of our youth becomes the music of our uh, The old foreground age. of our old age. Oh, yeah, I know. I know. Open elevator. All right, uh, you can redeem me with your pithy rant. Three, two, one, rant. I'm pithed off. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I am pithed off because kids nowadays and even adults nowadays seem to have rejected the past and what was great about growing up and in football there is something that is seemingly lost forever and that is the great nickname. There's no more flying doormats or super 
dupers. Everybody's nickname now is just a lazy contraction of their first name, so we all have five letters. I'm Finey, you're Roco, four or five letters, and everybody else falls in line. And I've decided to bloody do something about it because I've just seen a, a communique from the St Kilda Football Club, Rowan, about St Kilda's new recruits. Dougal Howard, Howie, <laughs> Brad Hill, Hilly, Zach Jones, Jonesy, Paddy Ryder, Rides, and on it goes. I mean, how boring is that? Not ridery. I have redrafted their nicknames. I oh, could. So, obviously, I'll start simple. Dougal Howard is obviously MD. <laughs> Very good, yep. He sounds like Doogie Howser. Wouldn't the wouldn't somebody on the playing list have heard of Doogie Howser? Or the coach? Or the coach's father? Paddy Ryder is Ricey. Again, a fairly simple calculation. Rice Paddy, Ricey. It's a bit different. Zach Jones is Basil. Now, this one's far more difficult. You see, Zach Jones doesn't have any hair. And in the olden days, they might have called him Curly or Afro. But I reckon... Well, I'm going to call him Brushes. And once I start calling him Brushes, because obviously he doesn't use them, he becomes Basil, as in Basil Brush. It's not going to stick, but it's going to be my nickname for him. Dan Butler takes the nickname of an old saint, Jason Blake, who used to be nicknamed by a certain group of the crowd, Buses, from Blakey on the Buses. Well, if Blakey, or Blake, was Buses, then surely Butler, the man he was chasing, is Buses as well. Dan Butler... As an ode to on the buses, your buses too. I've even got one for Ryan Abbott. Ryan Abbott, R. Abbott, Rabbit, Bunny, becomes Bugs. Bugsy Abbott. And of course, Bradley Hill is the truckie. Because he keeps going back and forth across the Nullarbor so often, you'd think he drove a road train. And there you go. Nicknames that you can live by. I can't wait to see them line up with Kingy. <laughs> uh, very good and they're all very good nicknames I, 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 I'm a big fan of all of them what you need to do now is jump on whatever the St Kilda fan forum is and get them out there get them in circulation early I mean it's like I, I campaigned for about three years to have um, uh, who was the older Archie Brendan Archie known as the Sneeze and his younger brother Callum known as the Sniffle. And I just <laughs> I just I couldn't get that public acceptance unfortunately. No, very good rant and very good nicknames Fine, I'm a fan. All right, we're gonna wrap it up there. Uh chock uh chock full show today and not for you. Uh what do you mean? You're off chock. Yeah, I am. I am off chalk. Don't don't make me think of it again. Um quick thank you to our sponsors. Oh uh, we'll this is appreciation to Andrew's Hamburgers, 144 Bridport Street, Albert Park. We've told you how good the burgers are, but we know that you love the podcast, so support the people that support us. And that means if you're getting a burger, you go to Andrew's, and if you want a new house built, not as likely, but possible, West Point Properties. Nick Spartels is a great bloke, and he takes personal pride in everything he does. And Rowan... How about the great people at Grays Online? Our brand new sponsor, Grays Online. Thank you guys for your support and uh, their support to Footyology listeners. Fantastic offer. Two very special cars being auctioned over the next week. A 2018 Ford Mustang Dick Johnson Limited Edition and a 2003 HRT Peter Brock Monaro. Check them out. The auctions start at just $9. I'll tell you one thing about Grays. If you like my mates and me as well, you'll get on Grays online and you'll be there for hours. So why not 
Use us as your background music. Play the podcast. Get on Grays Online and you'll have probably an hour or two of great fun and maybe great profit. The links to those cars you'll find in the episode description for this very episode. Grays Online don't just sell cars. There's a huge range of stuff from $2 bottles of wine to $2 million cranes. Everything in between. TVs, homewares, white goods, power tools and for Footyology listeners, this is an incredible offer. They are offering $30 off any purchase of more than $50. All you do to claim that is jump on their website and use the following two voucher codes, ROCO for me or FINEY for FINEY, R-O-C-O or F-I-N-E-Y. We'll see which one of us is more popular, FINEY. <laughs> oh, no! Use those voucher codes and anything you purchase at Grays Online that is valued more than $50, you will receive a $30 discount. It's a fantastic offer. We can't thank Grays Online enough for their support. Uh, thank you to all our sponsors and support them, guys. They help us keep this show free. Thanks for your company. Been a pleasure. We'll see you again next week. And uh, we're breaking our sequence here, Finey. Well, I know we've already played Ramstein on this show before, and it's pretty abrasive, as I've got to say. So um, we're going to finish this week's episode off with my album of 2009. It is Canadian band Alexis on Fire. The album is Old Crows, Young Cardinals. And uh, if you're wondering what it's like, check out the title track. We'll see you next week.
That's all you have to do.